1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus the Driven. And joining me, as he does every week, is ITK Principal David Leach.
2: David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well uh, and keeping track of the uh, politics at the moment. We've got a, um, uh, uh, a, a lot to talk about, I think, don't we?
1: Look, I think we do. Yes, um, the politics sort of um, the, the the debate moves back to Canberra. Um, I'm actually sitting in Canberra next to the lake. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw Barnaby Joyce just pedalling past on a bicycle, but I might have been wrong. But um, I sort of felt close to greatness or close to something. Um, but the safeguard mechanisms like to come up again in Parliament. One of a number of sort of tricky little debates for Labor to. Get through Um, the Greens opposing it, but kind of indicating, well, saying that they want no new coal or gas mines, um, but kind of indicating that they're going to approve it anyway. And Labour, as we saw with Chris Bowen on um, um, Insiders on Sunday, just sort of dancing around the issue because. Labor can't really sort of say one way or another that there will or won't be new coal or gas mines. So it's uh, it's essentially sort of caught up in the politics of it all. I think most people agree that there probably shouldn't be any new coal or gas generators at least, probably a few maybe metallurgical coal mines and some debate about whether we need any new gas.
2: I think that's right, Giles. I think myself, the safeguard scheme uh, has two criticisms really. The, f- the first is whether in fact the penalty price is actually high enough to really encourage uh, companies that are subject to it to actually pursue activities beyond buying credits. And you know, it's kind of, when you've got gas producers making up a lot of the uh, companies that are in that uh, uh, safeguard scheme then you kind of wonder what's the point of whether they'd emit anything at the point of production or not, (laughs) you know, when uh, the gas is all going to get shipped overseas or the coal and burnt and create, you know, scope three emissions that 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 are orders of magnitude higher than what they're actually preventing in the production. So that's sort of one philosophic debate. Uh, and I've a lot of sympathy for the Greens on that point, but you ask yourself, but politically it's impossible, I think, in this legislation to have new coal and gas plans banned. I'd like, to, I wish that was not the case, and we're a lot closer to it than we were years ago, but it, you really couldn't have that and not and expect to retain office. I don't think if you're the Labor Party, uh, just completely realistically this year, anyway. Uh, but you can start moving the ground. The second thing, though, is in the car in the scheme is is the safeguards. What could the Greens get? They could get, I think, uh, myself, uh, a better, better uh, carbon credits, c- carbon farming, and all of that sort of. Uh, there are still a lot of serious questions, despite the sub re- CHUB review about that, and I, I think that could be uh, cleaned up further. And I've always been a fan of uh, this idea of using renewable energy certificates, LGCs. Uh, to be able to satisfy your safeguards uh, liability so that we could get some further promotion of that and maybe uh, continue to get, push the price signal for new renewables up to the point where we can actually get some started because this year there haven't been many, have their Giles?
1: No, they haven't. And look, I, I'm quite sympathetic with that view too as well with the um, with the use of the LGCs, which would actually sort of cause more wind and solar farms to be developed rather than investing in projects, you know, such as farmers. Promising not to cut down trees they might not have ever intended to cut down anyway, and, and that question about the credits really is a very serious one. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of great debate about it, but I mean, this is seen to be, you know, of the utmost integrity, then there's always going to be doubt about it. And the debate now is coloured by the fact that, you know, we are pushing towards already 1.5 degrees and we need to have serious policy. So it's Tempting to think, look, something is better than nothing, but really we're at the stage now, we need to have something that's actually really, really biting and really needs to achieve the outcomes we desperately need to keep the environment safe. Um, on your point, David, I'd just also like to point out um, Katan Joshi did a very uh, detailed analysis, about 2,000, 3,000 words on the safeguard mechanisms, and it is very unsettling reading, just sort of really a warts and all analysis. Um, about the implications of what it doesn't do and I think that's worth reading and, and, and it's why I'm very, like you, sympathetic with the Greens pushing Labor as hard as they can on this. As for the projects, no, not much going on really at all David, we haven't, um, I think we got a press release last week about um, a new wind farm being built in Queensland, I can't even remember what the name of it is, it's about 150 megawatts, but really in terms of new construction there seems to be this massive pause at the moment. Um, We did see in the Energy Statement of Opportunities um, update from AEMO, that um, some developments, such as the big battery, the Waratah battery, uh, the super battery, has eased the near-term concerns about reliability breaches in the major states um some of the issues have been pushed back five or six or seven years probably not a major issue until the end of the decade but that's what the ecu is designed to do it's basically designed to highlight where the opportunities are to invest so
2: yeah so on on some data we're still running as far as i can see at about a 32 percent share of wind and solar in the total energy mix of the nem uh, which is up uh uh, significantly from last year about five percent um and and uh, but uh, we've actually passed the peak period seasonally for solar uh, solar production now it's starting to drift off again and wind is also weak. So we're starting to move into that uh, winter phase where coal and gas get uh, the upper hand uh, more in the pricing negotiations. We've seen, Nevertheless, uh, futures prices come down, uh, drift off a little bit. So uh, mainly, I think, because the gas prices, you know, stuck around the $14 mark uh, now and probably going to stay there forever since that's what the government's told everyone the price has to be. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, So there's all of that. But we do need, you know, lots more bulk, wind and solar. I mean, all the talk in the uh, Statement of Opportunities and all you hear from anyone else is about firming but it's really the bulk energy that's, uh, that's the key to our future and that we need these more and bigger wind and solar plants getting bigger. But as well as the, uh, getting announced and getting built, and the transmission that goes with them. But as well as that, we also need to focus on the behind the meter segment, which in the integrated system plan, the ISP, uh, most of the megawatts of storage, not not the energy, not the megawatt hours and terawatt hours, but the megawatts were actually coming from the behind the meter batteries. And this in statement of opportunities, we didn't see a single word about behind the meter. And that's because the statement of opportunities hasn't got round to thinking about behind the meter and how it fits into the overall plan yet it's still a leftover uh, piece of uh, a document that really only looks at things from one point of view that's the utility uh, big side of things but we need to understand are uh, all the small batteries being putting in at the household batteries at the rate uh, that we want and if they're not what can we do to move that along
1: well, that's a very interesting point david and um uh, there's actually a few comments there in response to the issue about the fact that it doesn't actually include the um, electric vehicles um opportunities that will come probably not so much now because there are not enough cars on the road but there will be hopefully in the next three or four or five years where that also does not figure at all and i think tim buckley um from climate energy finance made that very point David, I'm just talking about sort of capacity on the grid and um and behind the meter. I'm wondering if it's worth actually moving to our interview guest for this week. We recorded earlier this morning an interview with um, Jack Curtis from the new software company Nera, which have just completed a rather interesting investigation into the capacities of our major networks with some surprisingly good. News, which um, which talks of increased capacity, uh, both at large and small scale. But let's have a listen to Jack Curtis from NERA. Jack Curtis from the D- NERA. Jack, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast.
3: Thanks for having me, Giles.
1: Last time I spoke to you, I think you were building um, very large solar farms across Australia and Asia, and probably other parts of the world. Now you've moved into Digital platforms. Tell us what Nira is.
3: Sure. So, Nira at a high level is an enterprise software platform. We sell software to the owners of critical infrastructure, primarily electricity networks. At the next level down, what we do is we create three dimensional digital models uh, of infrastructure and we help the owners and operators of that infrastructure analyze a spectrum of use cases with a very high degree of accuracy and fidelity so that they have the confidence to then go and execute on that analysis on the physical asset.
1: Yes, it could sound like just another software company and what does all that mean? But I think you've just done actually a report in conjunction with Essential Energy and AEMO Services, which actually describes the biggest network, um, geographically anyway, in New South Wales, can actually host double the capacity that the even network owners and operators thought they could before. So just tell us, nice and slowly, just tell us how this discovery is even possible.
3: Sure. So I think, I think you, you make a very accurate observation, Giles. It, it can run the risk of just sounding like another digital software platform that visualises things. Uh, and I think that's really what the crux of what we do is, is that we are able to analyse engineering physics level state of networks and individual assets, which means that we give a level of understanding that you can't get in digital platforms. Now, why that's relevant to the essential scope is a couple of things. Uh, so at a, at a kind of simplified level, all electricity networks are rated at a certain temperature, which influences the amount of current that you can run through the lines. Now that temperature is a function of ambient temperature, uh, wind speed that cools electricity lines, and then the amount of current you run through the lines. Now why they have those ratings is that if they run too hot, then conductors sag and that creates safety and risk issues. And so to date electricity networks like essential that have to model 1.4 million conductors haven't been able to analyze each individual conductor for what the ambient temperature is, what the wind speed is, and what the current it could take. And so in the absence of having a software platform that can analyze every single individual span, but then equally importantly, understand how they all interact together on an ongoing basis they have to make very crude conservative assumptions around the heat rating for each conductor. And so when you're obviously introducing big safety risk issues, if you don't have a very good understanding, you have to take a very conservative approach. And so what we've been able to do working with Essential is identify to a much greater degree of precision what each conductor line rating could be or should be. And that means they can remove the conservative uh, assumptions around each individual conductor but also how the network is optimised as a whole.
1: This seems quite extraordinary. So you're talking about it can actually host double the capacity that it had um, um, estimated previously. And does this this apply equally to large scale um, installations such as wind and solar and storage, as well as rooftop um, installations and other distributed energy?
3: That's exactly right. And so it pretty much unlocks a lot of capacity that couldn't be deployed or made available for everything you just described. Uh, And now it's ability, and remember this is just with software analytics. So it's not like we're investing millions of dollars in network augmentation. This is just helping them utilize more of their network more efficiently and make it more available to large scale generation, to distributed generation. It pretty much changes the game around network access.
2: Uh, Jack, it's gonna be a a fairly complex topic, I guess, uh, for a lot of our audience, but um, I, I, as Giles said, if I just take the easy part first, one of the debates is about how much rooftop solar can be connected to networks uh, without causing voltage issues, for instance, that is too much rooftop sol- solar causes the voltage to go up where it is yep. and uh, in a network that's designed to run one direction and now it's been asked to run in the other direction. There hasn't, doesn't seem to have been that much evidence of that in, in reality, but nevertheless, it's an issue that's constantly talked about. How does your software fit into that story?
3: Yeah, it's a very good point, David. And so I think when you think about how to solve network constraints at a holistic level, there are three real buckets to it. The first one is we're still going to have to build new transmission infrastructure, so projects like HumeLink. So how can we do those more efficiently and cost-effectively? The second one is how can we make the existing network more available? And so that's the work we've been doing with Essential. And the third one to your question is, how do we improve the bilateral visibility on distributed generation assets? And so that's really the next topic that we're looking to tackle, because as you correctly point out, right now the challenge is that network utilities are relatively blind as it relates to the interactivity between electric vehicle chargers or rooftop solar. There are a number of companies looking to solve that challenge of bilateral visibility. Uh, We are working with the networks to identify what is the best solution to solve that. And then once you have that, how do you then show an integrated network model, which isn't just, all right, maximizing the existing distribution network, but also is maximizing how that distributed generation operating envelope can interact with it.
2: Thanks, and I, I guess my next question is: There's obviously historically been a lot of uh, network so- software, and the name of it will come to um, come to mind in a second. We also don't have really, in terms of uh, point of presence metering, time of use metering, is still very inadequate in Australia because uh, because um, uh, uh, we the AEMC set up this power of choice thing, which basically just meant that uh, nobody chose to have put meters in. Um, yep, and We also have at the transmission and uh, higher level power system modeling of which I think AEMO PSCAD is the kind of thing that we talk about. Can you just, uh, from where you sit, and I don't even, uh, excuse me, but I don't believe Jack, you're actually a software engineer by background, but nevertheless, can you tell me how all these uh, bits of software are coming together from your position as an experienced operator in the industry and how close we are to having you know, an entire integrated um, software model of, of our very difficult uh, wires and poles and distribution systems?
3: Yeah, no, I think, it's, I think it's actually the best question to be asked here, which is, all right, we're starting to see these components that are solving issues that were, quite frankly, not uh, feasible beforehand, but there are many kind of layers to how it gets solved at a systematic level. So the first one, just to kind of pick apart the question, is at a regulatory level? Um, currently, there are definitely constraints in the regulatory environment as it relates to how mainly retail level distribution uh, generation can be utilized. So, I think that's certainly part of the puzzle. I think the second part is, as you point out, there has been a myriad of software solutions that um, address individual components of the problem. And so, the software you mentioned, PLS CAD, that's extremely good at modeling individual assets. Uh, But if you're looking to simulate something at network wide scale at high velocity with the same degree of engineering functionalities PLS CAD, that's been difficult to date. Uh, And so our view is that there's not going to be one platform that rules them all. um, But you need to have a platform that has a degree of disruptive core functionality and the ability to integrate well with other solutions that are part of the puzzle. And so a very specific example is electrical modeling. That's not a core functionality in our platform. That's something we're currently exploring. What is the best input to integrate? But ultimately what you do need, and I think this is the most important part of it, is one platform that can surface all functionality in a holistic way and not in a kind of myopic quarantined way. Uh, And so you can make the best weighted average decision across all inputs, whether it's existing network, whether it's distributed generation assets, whether it's other aspects from a software functionality point of view that need to be incorporated.
2: And so I'm going to diverge away, a little bit away from uh, what NERA actually does here, but although before I do, can I ask, you mentioned that, I mean, how many networks would be your customers here in Australia out of the, what do I think, there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 odd uh, electricity networks in in the NEM,
3: Uh,
2: are you working with a number of them?
3: Yeah, we're at a point now we're probably about 60%, 65% of the market. So in New South Wales, Ausgrid, Essential, Endeavour, Transgrid are all major customers. We've pretty much finished modeling all of the distribution network in New South Wales, in Victoria, United Energy, PowerCore, uh, customers in South Australia, um, SA Power Networks, in WA, Western Power. So we're at a point now where And as you know, it's quite difficult um, to drive, you know, systemic adoption of something new in an industry that is operating critical infrastructure. And so we believe we're at a point of adoption now in this market where starting to bring it all together at statewide levels and even potentially the national level is both feasible. Um, I think that was also evidenced by uh, the participation of AMO services um, in this topic. They are keen to see how innovation like ours can be used to enable their policy. Uh, and so I think we're now at a point of adoption where you know, it's not a one-off use case, one-off customer exercise. It's getting you know, relatively close to being able to get to network-wide, um, country-wide coverage and functionality.
2: Yeah, because, and I'll hand back to Giles in just a moment, but I think the people, we constantly forget uh, how big the wires and poles distribution networks are. Last time I looked, which was about five years ago, there was about 70 odd billion dollars of regulated asset base and that would have to be $80 billion or even $90 billion uh, today. And that's the biggest part by value of the electricity system. But just also looking at your success in Australia, you said has taken you overseas. Are you focusing more on the United States or or in Europe at the moment? There's a lot of utilities in the USA, that's for sure.
3: Yeah, so the, the initial focus from an international point of view has been the US, largely because the challenges that utilities face here are almost one-to-one the same in the US. In the US, they're just bigger and, quite frankly, in much graver shape. And so an example would be we do a lot of work with network utilities here around extreme weather modelling. So whether it's floods, bushfires, hurricanes. uh, And as you all know, that's a topic that's pretty high up on their agenda. It's a macro topic that's not going anywhere anytime soon. And then you map that to somewhere like California, where the problems they have with wildfires are even more extreme. And so the U.S. has been a focus largely because the problems are exactly the same. They're just much bigger. And our solutions are exactly kind of what they, what they need to solve the problems that we've solved for network utilities here. In Europe, um, it's a little bit more different because the market's a little bit a little bit different from a structural point of view. But again, you know, what we find is that there's a very large homogeny across electricity utilities globally as relates to what they care about. They're either dealing with network resiliency issues in the uh, face of climate change and extreme weather, or they're trying to solve, you know, big existential threats around ageing infrastructure, um, or they're trying to understand how they can play a much more enabling role in the energy transition. So those three themes are kind of the meta themes in every market in which we participate.
1: So Jack, what's the actual um, practical uh, opportunity from this, um, particularly if we look at the essential network, um, you've got um, New South Wales government's 12 gigawatt um, renewable and storage plan to replace part of the infrastructure roadmap to replace coal-fired generators. You've now discovered that they can um, host twice the capacity that they thought they could. Does that simply mean that they actually have to invest less in network infrastructure than they thought they might have?
3: Yes, I think there are a few implications. The first one is that in order to connect 12 gigawatts of renewables to the state by 2030, uh, a lot needs to happen. Um, And I think to date, there's been a primary focus on that being almost exclusively achieved through new transmission renewable energy zones. Now, our view is that that's a very important component of the solution, but now we've unlocked uh, an entirely new component that can be leveraged, which is making the most of existing infrastructure. And to your point, doesn't require millions of dollars investment to make that available. So I think the first implication is that we can now uh, achieve those goals for the state at a much lower cost profile for consumers, uh, which I think is really the overarching motivation of that policy, introduce renewables at the lowest cost to consumers. So I think that's a pretty massive implication when you look at what it costs to build a new transmission line to a renewable energy zone. I think the second implication is and this is one that is not something we are deploying just yet but now we're at a point where we think this is realistic where you can change the game around how centralized renewables are connected historically it's been a relatively manual process a one-on-one engagement with the relative network utility if we can stand up a integrated statewide model of new south wales that has you know transparency around um, network access has the ability to um, prosecute the constraints of connecting a new solar plant or wind plant and ultimately even you know, a thousand rooftops, then you can completely disrupt how renewables are connected to the grid and removing you know, not just significant costs, but also significant timeline.
1: Tell us more about that. I mean, that's really fascinating. I mean, you've been a developer of solar farms yourself. I mean, you've come across all these sort of, you know, this, these issues about sort of finding a place on the grid, going through the grid connection process, going through the commissioning process that then just tell us more about how this will sort a of a lot of that generating
3: assets put in locations that, quite frankly, didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and so the first thing this does is removes that opaqueness as it relates to where is the best location for renewables. Um, then when you look at the actual process of, you know, navigating and now now all these network utilities, you know, are our major customers, I have uh, an enhanced empathy for what it's like to be on the other side, but also I think there's a big um, customer sensitivity evolution by networks that really want to be at the forefront and making this um, easier, faster and better. And so imagine a world where you can bring up one statewide model of the grid and you say, all right, I want to put 400 megawatts in XYZ and it can automatically tell you the constraints around that, maybe the marginal loss factors, maybe you need to invest some money in network augmentation, as opposed to it being what it is now, which is a manual taxi cab rank rule of submitting something to the network. They submit something back, then you submit something back. Uh, You know, for example, there's 300 gigawatts waiting in the network assessment pipeline in California. Um, And so...
2: Jack, Jack, just to come back, uh, uh, that's what I understand PSCAD uh, attempts to do and... One of the things about the renewable energy zones is that they submit one REZ, you know, application essentially to to AEMO. At least that's the New South Wales model. Once they've modelled out the REZ, I, I'm still unclear about how your software interfaces with that or competes with it. I mean, are you both trying to build the same model. Uh, you mentioned. Yeah, uh, yeah yeah, just... I,
3: th- I think the I think the important distinction, Dave is that PLS CAD is a CAD-based software. You're essentially drawing assets um, or lines or transmission routes over and over again. And so you if you want to draw the entire state of New South Wales once, that'll take you quite a long time. Um, they have done that historically because you're looking at you know critical infrastructure like Humelink. But if you then want to simulate hundreds of variations on what that network could look like, um, with you know hundreds of different inputs, that can take you probably up to six years. Uh, whereas in our software, it'll take you less than a day. And so I think the distinction is you can draw something once and have a steady state baseline. If you have enough time, you can draw that in PLS CAD. If you want to simulate something at network wide scale, with thousands of thousands of variables, but at a level of automation and velocity that is really what's practically required. That's where our platform really comes to bear.
2: And I'll just ask this one question and I won't even understand the answer and I'm not sure our listeners really care. But uh, I mean, <laughs> things like, like, like transients and harmonic stuff and, and you know, uh, p- potential for going the electricity flowing through a different set of wires, you know, fault management and all that sort of thing. Is yep. that the sort of thing that your software uh, does as well? So it can sort of, you know, you can say that the system will operate reliably if you put the network there?
3: Yeah, so that is actually a very relevant question. Yeah, and, and, and all of your listeners that care about faster renewables, more cost-effectively, which I imagine is all of them, should should you know have some cognizance of, like, what is actually required to understand a network-wide model. And so that is an input that we would integrate. Um, think about it, to have... A holistic network-wide model you need to understand all the mechanical physical characteristics which is the core functionality of our platform and you need to pair it with everything you just described david which is something that we've decided not to build but integrate but ultimately you need to be able to surface it in one platform that can optimize across everything and 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 that's really you know when you think about the role we're playing here we're solving half the functionality equation but we're solving almost as importantly the ability to surface all relevant inputs to make high velocity, very accurate decisions with thousands of variations over and over and over again. Now, if you want to draw it once, you can draw it in a CAD-based software. If you want to simulate you know, the day-to-day variations of thousands of different inputs, that's where our platform really um, demonstrates its strengths.
1: I'm still just sort of chewing on this uh, concept of enhanced empathy um, on part of the networks and the market operators and the regulators. <laughs> like that. Uh, I think I think, I think there's a few developers just sort of chucked on their cornflakes when you mentioned that. But um, anyway, um, well, you,
3: remember, Giles, I was one of those developers, so you, you know I come to this this <laughs> conversation with you know empathy on both sides.
1: So. Uh, it's terrific. Um, it's fascinating, isn't it? That um, you know, basically, we're discovering all these things about our existing network. You just go back six or seven years ago, and you got. People People say, "Well, you couldn't possibly have more than 10% renewables on the grid." And just before the Tesla big battery went in, well, you can't have a battery of more than the megawatt on this. Um, see, 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 no, 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 prospective. That's one very, very senior engineer. Now we're discovering yep. um, that not only can batteries <laughs> be very big, they can be very useful, um, and they can probably yep. do replicate all the services now we're getting your software i mean gosh how far are we how far can we go I mean, it's just it's just fascinating this this uh, this whole um transition to sort of smart software and this sort of deep dive and finding out geez we've actually got a really good
3: grid could do all these things we had no idea it could do it's exactly right and i think i think it is you know in defense of the of the empathy comment which you know i <laughs> i have empathy for as well I think there's a few things. One, you know, I think it's sometimes underappreciated that network utilities are responsible for keeping the lights on. And so, you know, that that's that's a non-trivial role. And to ensure that's the case, they have to, you know, make very, very critical risk-free decisions around how the network is managed. I think the second thing is that, you know, in the absence of innovation, some of these things just weren't understood and couldn't be understood. Um, And so I think it would be more terrifying if this innovation was coming to the market and network utilities weren't embracing it or weren't looking to leverage it to um, uncover things that, you know, they weren't aware of or couldn't be done before and now are aggressively looking to do that. And so I think that would be that would be a dismay if it was like, all right, we could do all these things. And they're like, no, we're still going to manage it as we always have. I think, you know, what we've seen is a very, very proactive push and adoption by network utilities to take technology um, and make the role that their network can play in critical things like the energy transition, uh, far more compelling. It's it's interesting
1: that you say that because, I mean, look, I know nothing about engineering, really, in the great scheme of things, but um, I do notice that there's certain engineers who are just not for turning. They've got, like, a set view about how the whole thing operates, and that's the way it is, that's the way it's always been, and it's not for turning. So when you're talking to the network operators, the the current generation of them, you're sort of finding people who are really quite receptive and, 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 and open to the fact that, gosh, a lot of the things that they had assumed are no longer true, but they're going to go towards this new truth, if you like
3: yeah definitely on a net basis i mean you know and i say this to our major customers so it won't surprise them to hear it here they and they have a high self-awareness around this right they know there are anach- anachronistic kind of sentiments you know within some parts of network utilities but on a net basis what i've observed and this includes people that have been 30-year engineers is this kind of ambition to leave a better legacy and so I think there's has been this real evolution in the mindset, which is, right, we have this self-awareness around what our internal challenges are. We recognize we probably can't do this ourselves unless we partner with those that generally are bringing a different agility or solution to the party. But on a net basis, I would definitely say across every network we deal with, or almost every network, that there is a massive sentiment shift. Um, and even, you know, losing some of the ossified behavior of the past, which is, no, it can't be done.
2: And, and i'm just going to put my hand up one more time for networks in this respect if the cost of installing rooftop solar in australia is about half what it is in the united states uh, i think very very roughly and it's the willingness in the end whether they wanted to do it or not of networks to actually allow rooftop solar to be connected so easily that has helped to keep that actual cost down and make Australia the world leader in, in rooftop solar and therefore the opportunity to integrate with uh, and build a completely different or better, better system than uh, most other grids in the world have by having more power consumed closer to, the, to, the, to, to where it's consumed is, is terrific. Jack, I think that's been a very interesting discussion. I think if we, if we keep talking, we'll get overly technical. Uh, uh but it's great to see yet another australian success story in 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 software that's that's the way i think about it and i think tremendous uh, export opportunity too if we can actually make this good software if we look at plexos modeling uh, it's some of the uh, most widely and well respected software used in in the global uh, power m- m- modeling as i understand it and uh, plenty more to come i hope
3: yeah, no, thank you, David. I couldn't agree more and uh, appreciate you guys making the time for this morning. Yeah,
2: thanks
1: very much for joining us, uh, Jack. Um, uh, really appreciate it.
3: Thanks again, guys.
1: And uh, that was um, Jack Curtis from NERA, a company who I should um, point out is um, backed by Scott Farquhar's uh, Skip Capital. Scott Farquhar, um, of course, being the co-founder of Atlassian with Mike Cannon-Brooks and also SquarePeg, which is... Um, the investment vehicle of Paul Bassett from Seek. David, really interesting, um, Jack's comments about the sort of the, the changing thinking in the networks um, as a result of sort of new technologies, new software, new realizations. Um, what's your assessment of uh, of that?
2: Well, as I said on uh, in the interview, the networks are the biggest part of the electricity system, the wires and poles, and we didn't talk about transmission in that and how much transmission can be carried. <laughs> and transmission's a topical thing because um, if we look at the snowy debacle that's been widely reported, uh, uh, you know, transmissions, uh, whether it's actually needed because of snowy or it's needed anyway, I'm very much of the view that Hume Link and uh, uh, the Western um, uh, Interconnector in Victoria, um, uh, are to VNI West, uh, are going to be very much needed whether we have snowy or not. Uh, but but uh, certainly getting transmission built and modelled and how much it can carry and uh, is, is another big topic but you know uh, the, the, the networks are such a big part of the system and we just don't talk about them enough and i actually think that we carry over this regulatory model from the uk where networks are regarded as a monopoly and we've got this new attitude that you see from new south wales labor and victorian labor that everything has to be a public service, you know, and it's better to have central planning for everything and government ownership and, you know, the government knows best about how to do do it all. And I just don't agree with that, particularly. I don't agree with this concept of regulated monopolies anymore. I'd like to introduce competition into every part of it. I know that makes me an outsider, but I think competition produces results, it gets, everyone gets a go. They come up with their own answers, seven out of 10 of them don't work, one or two of them end up winning and eventually they win so much that they become a monopoly and then you've got to re-regulate. But my, 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 my point is that um, networks, uh, because of the way they are regulated, we, we have difficulty getting community energy up, up and running properly. Uh, there's not that much incentive really to uh, do things better because in, in a sense, they get uh, revenue based on on their asset base and their costs. Uh, And yes, they have to be efficient, but it really doesn't do much for innovation, that regulatory model.
1: Interesting too. And uh, look, you mentioned a couple of things there, one, Snowy Hydro. Um, We've reported quite a lot in the last week about that, and we've heard the revelations. Um, about all the problems in the tunnels. Um, So a bit of a hat tip out there to Ted Woodley, um, who's been key to some of these investigations and unveiling many of the problems within um, Snowy Hydro and the Snowy 2.0 project, um, and also the delays to curry curry as well, gas generator. Um, And also just to mention too, in passing, uh, the Victorian Government on Friday announced that it was following the New South Wales path of uh, big increases in payments to landowners and landholders um, for the proposed transmission links, which I think is um, going to be a big factor in winning approvals. Um, obviously, in Victoria, there are issues with some of the proposed pathways. It's interesting that they've come up with a, another route for VNI West, uh, trying to circumnavigate um, or just go around some of the major. Um, uh, blocks so um it's good that um, they're thinking about these and showing some sort of capacity for adaptation and um and flexibility so so that's very good um david i think i'm running out of things to say I'm not too sure if there's anything else you need to add for today's podcast um if not we might uh, give it a wrap
2: no giles i think that's right and i'm glad you mentioned about the extra payments in victoria i mean there's lots of people who do things uh, for ideology only because they like their view of the mountain Uh, and and couldn't care less how much money they have to pay or miss out on because they want their view of the mountain. But there's lots of other people for whom things actually have a price. Uh, Electricity transmission's been around forever for a lot of people and people have put up with it. It's only in the past few years we've heard so many complaints about the fact that it looks bad. And I think myself that money can play a part in overcoming that particular problem.
1: Indeed. Okay. Well, look, that's a wrap for this podcast. Well, I'd just like to thank Jack Curtis from NERA um, for joining us. Um, really interesting conversation about the capacity of networks and the uh, the uses of advanced software. i um, just like to point out that the Driven podcast has resumed. Um, we've started off with an interview with Rob Robert Llewellyn from Fully Charged, who are about to host their first big Australian EV conference um, in Sydney on the uh, weekend of March 11 and 12. And it's going to be, quite huge so if you've got any vague interest in evs get along there Um, i and um, most of the rest of the team from the driven will be appearing in some capacity or another and apart from that um, we'll be back possibly later on this week if not first thing next week with another issue of the energy insiders podcast and thanks of course to our sponsors pylon and evergen and we wish you a very good week bye for now
0: energy insiders was brought to you by evergen